You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We want to put our focus there this morning. Uh, but just before we get there, if you recall, last week we looked at the first section of the chapter, verses 1 through 13, and we took the time to focus specifically on the Apostle Paul's wish that the Ephesians would not be discouraged by his imprisonment. He starts in verse 1 by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, uh, sorry, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he goes on a bit of a rabbit trail, a long parenthesis, before he finally comes back to finish his initial statement in verse 13. He says, Therefore I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulation on behalf, on your behalf, for they are for your glory. The parenthetical statement there is Paul again explaining the very thing that he's been speaking of in chapter 2. If you'll recall chapter 2, uh, namely that the Gentile, who was once far off from God, and the Jew, who was near to God, are now made into one body uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so from verse 19 in chapter 2, Paul says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking to the Gentiles, which is us. But you are now fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." And he continues in verse 1 of chapter 3 from that saying, For this reason, all that we've just talked about, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he goes into his parenthetical statement before coming back to finish his sentence in verse 1 of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul then takes what is actually just one really long, all of those, those 13 verses is just one long sentence in the Greek, and so he didn't breathe anywhere in all of that. And basically, he's uh, just doing several different things. Uh, He's speaking of his stewardship of the mystery. The mystery is that the Jews and the Gentiles are now one in Christ. He affirms his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he speaks of the eternal purpose of God carried out in Christ Jesus. So in other words, this was always God's plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles and to unite the two in one body, but now it's being revealed in the church. So the apostle effectively communicates just these three truths in that first section. His responsibility and calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. He communicates the content of the mystery, again, of salvation to the Gentiles and the unification of the church and the revealing of God's eternal plans in Christ Jesus. And that was what that first section Really covered. And so now we come to verse 14. Well, this is where the Apostle Paul picks up from verse 1, right? Uh, He comes back from his detour, which was to be a prayer. Let's go ahead and read that section, uh, starting at verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now remember, this is connected back up to that first verse from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the entire section this morning is really a prayer, and it's the second one that we see the Apostle Paul giving in the book of Ephesians, uh, the first time Paul prays is chapter 1, 15 through 23. The first prayer of Paul was that the Ephesians would truly come to know God in such a way that they would understand the hope that they have in Christ because of their calling. 
Remember, chapter 1 is where we were told we were chosen before the foundations of the world. We were predestined, we were adopted, we were redeemed. And then Paul prays that we would come to understand all of that in such a way that we have a surety and hope because of our election. Secondly, he wanted them to understand the riches of God's inheritance in the saints and that they would understand the power of God that works in them. And then he prays here in our passage this morning, the second time. This time, the focal point of his prayer is found in verse 16, that believers would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So this is what Paul's wish for you and I this morning, that we would be strengthened in our inner man. So that's all very well as an overview. But as we begin to look at our passage and consider it a bit more deeply this morning, the very first thing that I want us to notice is that the Apostle Paul has the habit of praying. He has the habit of praying. It's not the Apostle Paul's massive intellect that he trusts to bring about change in the church. It isn't his teachings, even though that they are from the Lord, but he relies on the power of prayer. And so twice now we've had a teaching of Paul, and then he follows it with a prayer that demonstrates his trust is in the power of God. He certainly does teach, and that's needed. Teaching renews the mind, but the apostle realizes what I fear many Christians today fail to realize, and that is the real power of prayer. Everything about the Christian faith relies on the power of God. I mean, you've seen it already in Ephesians, right? We don't save ourselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And then it's God who ordains that we should be saved, who predestines us, who adopts us. It's God who brings us from death to life. And so we rely on the power of God. And from there, we're being sanctified. And we're sanctified by the power of God, not of our own doing. And so we are to be a praying people relying on God's power. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians, we're told to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing. This is what the Christian should look like. In 1 John, we're told to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. In 2 Chronicles, we see God's desire for his people to pray. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray... And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. James 5.13 says, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is any cheerful? Let him sing praise. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, And when you pray. In other words, the expectation is that the Christian is a praying person. The Christian who doesn't pray will be, at very best, a weak Christian. And I hardly think that you can be a Christian at all if you never pray. An old preacher who's been dead for some time now used to say this about God and prayer. He said, if you want to see how popular a church is, attend Sunday morning. If you want to see how popular the pastor is, attend the Sunday night service. But if you want to see how popular God is, attend the prayer meeting, and God loses every time. That's a sobering and very sad statement. There's a harsh reality in that. If we can spend countless hours on social media, watching television, if we can be captivated for hours by movies and entertainment, we certainly can take a few minutes every day to pray. And Paul was the kind of man who lived his life dependent on prayer. We see that in our passage this morning, and we would do very well to imitate Paul's heart for prayer and his understanding of his dependency and hours on prayer. Well, the second thing I want to notice in the text this morning is not only that Paul prayed, but I want to point out the manner in which he prayed. In verse 17, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. 
I'll be quick to say that this is not a prescription for how you must always pray, but it is worth noting the posture of Paul in this particular verse. Scripture demonstrates a lot of different postures, okay? So you don't have to be on your knees every time you pray. For instance, Jesus fell on his face in prayer in Matthew 26, right? King David sat and prayed in 1 Chronicles 17. And Abraham, it tells us that he stood and prayed in Genesis 18. But Paul's kneeling here does represent something, and it represents his submission to God in this instance. If you consider the fact that one would bow very low or even kneel to the ground when approaching a king historically, or someone of significant higher rank or status, we can understand the picture there, right? Oftentimes in days of old, people would take a knee before the king or bow low, and that was an act of submission before a recognized authority. And so here, Paul is bowing before his king. I think we see that it's out of his love for God and understanding of God's status compared to his own. It's not the only place we see kneeling, however, and so I do think that it signifies something else also, and that is a posture of passion. In uh, chapter 9 of Ezra, verse 5 or 6, it says, I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. You see, he was in anguish. This was a prayer of deep passion, and it was a position of passion and submission before God. Daniel, a similar thing in chapter 6, after discovering that King Darius's commissioners conspired against him by having the king sign a decree that no one could make a petition or pray, basically, to any god besides the king, or the penalty would be the cast be cast into the lion's den, what does Daniel do? Well, Daniel goes up into his attic the way he always does, and he bows low on his knees in prayer in response to hearing the news. It says in verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in the roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. And so we can see throughout Scripture that kneeling is not just a sign of submission, but it's also a sign of passion. And so here we have the Apostle Paul who is kneeling in prayer to seek God for the sake of the believers in Ephesus. And so we see that Paul's not just doing something ritualistic. He has a genuine care, a genuine concern for the Ephesian Christians, and he's taking this, this, this concern before God. And we'll get into what all that is. If you'll also notice, Paul directs his prayer to the Father specifically. We understand that God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father are all one, but we should notice that the pattern in Scripture is to pray to the Father specifically. So we get to verse 15. Paul in verse 15 then recognizes the source of spiritual family. He says concerning God, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So at this time, he's into his prayer. Sometimes we hear people say things like, well, all people are God's children, right? We've, I mean, I've heard that here in our own town from multitudes of people. Everybody are children of God. Um, or, you know, every human is a child of God. All people are God's people. In reality, that's just simply not true. And that's not what Paul is acknowledging here. Paul says, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives his name. So what is he saying if he's not saying that all people, period, are God's children? Well, if you'll recall, back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature 
not children of God, children of wrath, even as the rest. So there are two groups of people. There are those that are God's family, and there are those that are not. And so Paul very clearly is not communicating that every person is God's family, but he is recognizing that God is the source of all of those who are his family. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, we're told that we were adopted as sons through Christ Jesus. In other words, we were a part of another family, right? To be adopted, you have to be a part of a different family, and then you're adopted into your new family. Well, who adopts us? God does through Christ So these are the ones to whom Paul is referring specifically. He's speaking about the redeemed, those who have been adopted by God, those who are saved, whom he says every family in heaven on earth derives its name. And he's speaking of the family of saints. So we have the Apostle Paul on behalf of the Ephesians, who's bowing on his knees, approaching the throne of God boldly and humbly, acknowledging that it is from God who every family is named. And so from here on, we're going to begin to see the substance of Paul's prayer in verses 16 through 19. So Paul isn't offering up just, again, some meaningless prayer for the sake of writing a letter. No, at the moment, the Apostle Paul, remember, he's in prison, right? He's literally chained to Roman soldiers, And he's sincerely concerned about the Christians in Ephesus, and by extension, all believers. And so this prayer is not only something that's needed by the Christians in Ephesus, it's something that we need also. It's a prayer for every Christian in the family of God. Paul really prays for five realities to be made sure in the Christian in this prayer. The first thing he prays is for inner strength. For the Christian. In verse 16, he goes on to pray for the indwelling of Christ and for love to be grounded in them. In verse 17, in verses 18 through 19, he prays that they are filled with the fullness of God. And then lastly, we're going to see that he prays that God's glory would be proclaimed and made manifest through them. So it's quite a lot in a short prayer. In verse 16, Paul prays that God would grant you, according to the riches of his own glory, to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in the inner man. Well, why is that prayer so important to us as Christians? Well, it's important because the inner man is the source of all of our real strength. I mean, we understand this, right? We, when, if we want bodily, physical strength, what do we do? I mean, you're involved in exercising and doing, you know, these different things to get your body healthy and strengthen it. We go to the gym, we work out, we do all these things to strengthen our outward body. But in some ways, that is ultimately meaningless because as we get older, we naturally get weaker. The outward body strength kind of fades away, but our inner strength doesn't fade away. I mean, this is the source of what we need for life and our practice in faith. And so Paul is praying here that we have what's most important for us. We work out our physical strength, but we also need to work to strengthen the inner man. And he recognizes that ultimately God is the source of that strength. It begins when we're saved from death and brought into spiritual life. That's the beginning of our inner strength. It's the source of our spiritual walk. And as our physical body grows weaker and weaker, the idea is that we become sanctified. And as we give ourselves to the disciplines of the faith, our inner man becomes stronger and stronger. The inner man is where we are sanctified. It's the source of power for godly living. If the inner man is weak, the Christian is weak. If the inner man is strong, the Christian is strong. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that strengthens our spirit, enabling us to be God's witness and to grow in grace and holiness. And so this is one of the functions of the Holy Spirit, to strengthen our inner man. 
The same word here for strong in the passage is used in several other places in Scripture. In Luke 1.80, speaking of Jesus, it says, And the child continued to grow and became strong in spirit. Again, in Luke 2.40, it says, The child continued to grow and became strong, increasing in wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. In 1 Corinthians 16, the apostle tells them to be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And so it is through God's Spirit that we are strengthened. And so the Apostle Paul is praying for this very thing. I mean, this really is more crucial to the Christian walk than anything else, that your inner man be strong. Not that we shouldn't take care of our physical bodies, we should, but we should be far more concerned about our inner man being strengthened. So how do we do that? Well, as we read and study the scriptures and seek to be obedient to God's word, the Holy Spirit strengthens us. As we develop spiritual disciplines, prayer, being with God's people, fasting, serving, giving, all those things, God's spirit strengthens us. And so God does the work, but our responsibility is to be faithful and to be obedient. There's a lot of confusion about what it looks like to be in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, those kind of things. We have a really uh, nice passage in Galatians 5.16, and we're told to walk by the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And then God is very gracious to tell us what that looks like right after. It says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This is what the inner man growing in strength looks like. The stronger we become in our inner man, the less we desire sinfulness, the less we engage in sinfulness, the more we are holy in our lives as time goes on. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is praying because it's vital. And so we praise for that. First, well, Paul continues this train of thought in verse 17, and he's praying this so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, that's an interesting passage because Paul is speaking to believers, right? So they already have Christ in their hearts, and so we can't be speaking of Christ being in their hearts for the first time. He's not speaking of that initial indwelling of Christ at the time of salvation. The Ephesian Christians are already saved. They already have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So what is Paul really praying for here? Well, the phrase dwell in your heart here really means to be at home. So he's not praying that Christians who are already Christians will be indwelt by Christ. That's already happened. He's really praying that for the Christian, Christ would really be comfortable, would really be at home in their heart. Well, that's quite a very different thing. So he's praying that you would be made holy and that there's a place fitting for Christ in you. There's a great little book that I actually read it just yesterday that I think illustrates this point very well. The book is about coming, about Jesus coming to dwell in your heart, and the book's just a very small little allegory. In fact, it was so good that we've ordered several of them for the church. But it illustrates this passage and what it means for Christ to be comfortable in dwelling in the believer. And so the question is not, do you have Christ? Because you do as a believer. The question is, is Christ comfortable with you in your life? Let me just read, uh, walk you through the premise of the book. The book starts at the beginning of salvation, and it gives a picture of the front door of the house having been opened and Jesus coming in. So this is salvation. Then the man who's just been saved in the book, remember it's an allegory, he begins to give Jesus a tour of his home. You know how we do this, right? Some people, they come to your home for the first time. I don't really know why we do that, but we give them a tour around and show them where everything is, at least where the bathroom is and all that sort of thing, and the coffee for those of us who like coffee. 
Um, so that's what's happening. So he's giving a Jesus a tour of his home in this book, and the first stop is the study or the library, and this is meant to represent the guy's mind. So he's just become a believer. He's taken Jesus to his library, and he says in the book that as Jesus looks around at the books on the man's shelves and the magazine on the table, the man starts to become a little uncomfortable. He's never been uncomfortable being in this room in his house before, but he begins to realize that he has books and magazines that are too impure for Jesus to even look at as he glances around. These are things that Christians shouldn't be thinking or reading. And so at the end of the tour of this library, he asks Jesus to help him clean up the room. And Jesus replies in the book, First of all, take all the materials that you're reading and viewing which are not true, good, pure, and helpful, and throw them out. Now, put on those empty shelves the books of the Bible. Fill your library with the scriptures and meditate them. Meditate on them day and night. Jesus, in the book, continues speaking with the man. He says, as for the pictures on the wall, you will have difficulty controlling those images, but I have something that will help. And he says that Jesus gave him a full-size portrait of himself and says, hang this centrally, Jesus says, on the wall of your mind. And so to deal with all of these thoughts, concentrate on Christ. Take captive your thoughts, we're told in Scripture, right? And that's really what he's speaking to. How do we take them captive? Well, we take them captive by meditating on God's Word regularly and by bringing ourselves back to focus on the things of Christ. So he continues the tour through the house. And remember, we're talking about the Apostle Paul praying that Christ would really be comfortable in your heart. From the library, the man visits his dining room, which in the book is meant to represent appetites and desires. So what are your appetites and desires? Well, he brings out all of this different food to Jesus, things that he likes. And some of the food was wealth. Some of the desires was career. Some of the desires, there was all these different things. And at the end, he noticed that Jesus didn't eat any of his food. And so he says... Jesus says to him in the book, if you want food that really satisfies you, do the will of your heavenly Father. In other words, chasing all these worldly desires isn't going to satisfy you. But if you want to be satisfied, do, do the will of your heavenly Father. Put his pleasure before your own. Stop striving for your own desires, your own ambitions, and your own satisfactions. Seek to please him. That is the food that will really satisfy you. So it was two rooms that Jesus isn't quite comfortable with in his home. So he goes to the next one, which is the living room. This was the meeting place. In the book, he goes through a long dialogue where he commits to meeting with Jesus every day in the living room. But eventually, in the book, he starts talking about the fact that his life is getting very busy and it's, he doesn't quite have time to go into the living room anymore. He doesn't have time to give to Christ what he used to and so the relationship is strained and eventually he comes and he repents and he begins to make it a priority to meet there again well they continue into the next room which was the work room this was the garage where he used his gifts and his talents to make various things this was the place that represents your skills your giftings to serve Christ in the body and they have a dialogue there about how he's using his gifts and if he's even using his gifts. From there, they visited the rec room. Well, this was an interesting one in the book. Um, this is where he went to have fun and fellowship. This is the room that contained all of his associations and his friends and who he hung out with and that sort of thing. Here, the man in the book says, quote, there were certain associations and activities I wanted to keep for myself, away from God, right? I did not think Jesus would enjoy or approve of them. And so that's something he had to deal with in the book. Eventually, the conclusion he came to was those associates that he loved that weren't quite Christ-honoring, he had to part ways with. Well, the next room they visited was the bedroom where basically they spoke about putting the welfare of your spouse above your own. 
The next stop was the kitchen. Uh, this was an interesting room. Jesus says about the kitchen, he says, preparing and serving food is essential to keep a family healthy and happy. Well, we get that, right? He goes on to say in the book, without adequate nourishment, people are weakened, sickened, or even die. In the family of God, there are many doing kitchen duty. I have to admit, our church is really good at this. Ministers, missionaries, employed, volunteer workers, devoted to preparing and serving the bread of life to the people of Christ. So the point of the kitchen was to begin serving Christ in whatever ways and capacities he could. And they talked about some people preparing the meal and that being missionaries and pastors and other people cleaning the dishes and setting up uh, and things like that. The last place he visited, probably the most tense in the book, he recounts the story of the hall closet. So remember, the, the Apostle Paul is praying that Christ would be at home in our hearts. And so, so far, he's been to every room in his home, and the book was actually written with this verse in mind, and it's meant to give a depiction of whether or not Christ is really at home in us. So he comes to this hall closet. The scene in the book is of the man coming home, and when he opens the door, Jesus is standing there to greet him. And Jesus says to him, there's a peculiar odor in your house. That's interesting. Something must be dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's the hall closet. The book says that the man knew instantly what Jesus was speaking about and said to himself, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anybody to know about. Certainly, I did not want Christ to see them. End quote. As it turns out, they were dead and rotting things left over from his previous life that he wanted to hold on to. He says that they weren't wicked, but they were not right, nor were they good, and they're not things that the Christian should have. But he goes on to say, yet I love them. He says Jesus goes upstairs, takes him upstairs, and actually points at this little closet door, so he doesn't just let it go. And in the book, Jesus says, it's in there, some dead thing. And then he goes on to talk about how that made him angry. He was angry at Jesus for pointing out this dead thing. He goes on to say, I gave him access to the study, to the dining room, to the living room, to the work room, to the rec room, to the bedroom, the family room, the kitchen. And now Jesus was asking about this little two-by-four closet. He's angry. In other words, I've given Jesus everything else in my life, but I don't want him to have this thing. Christ, you can't have that. Whatever that dead thing was. The story goes on with some dialogue in the end, however. He turns over the key to Jesus. Jesus says he can never stay in a home with a smell like that. So he turns over the key to Jesus and gives the picture of repenting for whatever it is that he's hiding and has kept secret. And Jesus goes in and he cleans the room. Great picture of the forgiveness that we as Christians have and the grace of God as we give up those things we know we shouldn't have so that Christ can be comfortable in our home. And so that is Paul's prayer to us this morning is that Christ would be not dwelling in you for the first time, but that he would be at home in you. If Jesus were to take a tour through the home of your heart and enter into the likeness of each of these rooms, the question is, would he be comfortable? Would he be at home? Or would Christ have to say to you, I need the key to that door because it has dead things, and I can't stay in the same house with that. Again, the point is that he would be home, not that we can lose our salvation, so that, that's not what he's meaning. But is your mind filled with things that are too impure for Christ to look upon? Is there any part of your life that's withheld from Christ? That's really the point. And we 
Thankfully, God is rich in mercy. We've been reading about his mercy the whole time, the fact that he even saved us as sinners. God's full of compassion. He's full of long-suffering with his children. And as we confess our sins, as we give him the keys to those hidden things and ask him to clean them out, he does so. And so when we do that, we make our hearts through obedience and faith and repentance a place that Christ can dwell comfortably That is what the Apostle Paul is speaking of. He continues from there into verse 18, saying, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth So here's the purpose statement of his prayer. Because we are strengthened in our inner man, because we have Christ dwelling in our hearts comfortably, because we are being rooted and grounded in love, that we may be able to comprehend some truth. And the the truth that we want to comprehend is in the very next verse. Being rooted and grounded in love requires us to be grounded in God and his word. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5 says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into steadfastness of Christ. A Christian who doesn't have love can hardly be called a Christian at all. Now the challenge here isn't that statement I just made. The challenge is defining love the way God defines it. Right? Defining love the way God defines it. But love is at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. We are to love God. Jesus says in Matthew, right, this is one of the great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Well, what does that look like? I think that can be summarized by Jesus' statement in John 14, 15, he says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those words are from Christ himself. In other words, a heart that truly loves God, truly loves Christ, will seek to obey him in all things. Now, what I'm not saying is that we do this perfectly all the time. But our heart is, longs to be obedient and faithful. When we fail, we repent and we continue to pursue a life of obedience. That's what he means here. We get back up when we fall, we repent and we continue to be faithful. But most assuredly, for the Christian who has little concern about whether or not they're obedient, Jesus himself says, this is the test of whether you actually love me is that you obey my commandments. But loving God isn't the only mark of the Christian. We're also told to love others, right? Back to that Matthew passage, it's chapter 22, the very next verse from the one I just read, verse 39, Jesus says this, he gives us a second commandment. He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this one has probably gotten more abused in the last two years than any other command. Love your neighbors. What does it mean to love your neighbor? I mean, it's effectively been weaponized by either biblically ignorant and foolish Christians or just worldly godless fools. We have to love, but again, this love is defined by God. It has nothing to do with whether or not you take a vaccine or wear a mask or share your medical information. You can't manipulate people by saying you love your neighbor by X, Y, Z. No, we love our neighbor, and that love is defined by God. Love your neighbor doesn't mean do whatever your neighbor thinks it is you should do. That's not love, that's stupidity. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13 what it is to love our neighbor. From verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then he goes on to explain. He says, for this, in other words, this love looks like this. You shall not commit adultery. You love your neighbor, don't sleep with their spouse. 
You shall not murder. You love your neighbor, you don't kill them. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so loving our neighbor really means to look out for their best interest best we can. They don't get to define that, that this is what love is, and ultimately their best interest is that they know Christ. And so Paul's prayer here is that we would come to understand the fullness of this love. And this is what he's speaking about when he talks about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. He's talking about of love. Because there's no Christian life without genuine love. And we have to be immersed in God's love first to understand the fullness of love that Paul is praying we come to understand. Paul says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Again, he's speaking of love. With all the saints is an interesting observation here. It's particularly interesting in our own setting, but I think in the American church. With all the saints, you can't do it on your own, in other words. There's no such thing as singular Christianity. I'm just going to do my faith on my own in my own house. That is a Christianity that the Bible doesn't understand, doesn't know. It's part of the American culture for sure. But Paul says that we, he wishes that we would be able to comprehend this with all the saints. We don't live the Christian life in a vacuum, in other words. The Christian who chooses to be around other believers as little as possible will be a Christian who is effectively just dying inside, if they're Christian at all, to begin with. If you have no love for God's people, it's probably because you have no real love for God. You can't hate the head of the church and then hate the body of the church. You can't want to be with Christ and not want to be with his people. But beyond all of that here, if we really are to comprehend the fullness of God's love, we have to have one another. This is Paul's prayer. Well, the writer in Hebrews in chapter 10, 24, 25 says this. He says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You can't do that if you're on your own. Then in the same verse, he says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's no such thing as an isolated Christianity. The verse says, let us consider. In other words, we're supposed to be very thoughtful about how to help one another, how to spur one another on to love and good deeds And so if we're to comprehend with all the saints, as Paul's praying here, we kind of have to be around saints, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore encourage one another and build up one another. There's a lot of one another's in the Bible. And so the idea that you don't have to be a part of, of a healthy local church is a very foreign idea. Because how can you commit to one another if you're not around one another? How can you serve one another if you're not around one another? How can you love one another if you're not around one another? That is a very westernized way of thinking that is totally foreign to Scripture. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. And so we should ask, do our brothers and sisters know that we're committed to them or Have we left them to wonder or doubt? This is one of the good benefits of church membership. People around you don't have to wonder whether you're committed or not. If someone doesn't know that we care about their well-being, then it's probably because we haven't been very intentional in letting them know that. We're intentional, hopefully, about letting our spouse know we care about them and we love them. We should be intentional about letting our children know we care about them and we love them. And we also should be intentional about letting our brothers and sisters in Christ know we care about them and love them. And so the expectation here that Paul is pointing to is that as we come together, that is the context in which we 
become more fully aware of the depth and the height and the breadth of God's love. We can't get there on our own. We all have blind spots, as we say, right? And we need others to point those areas out to us gracefully and lovingly, but to do it nonetheless. And so we get to that particular part in the passage where he mentions the breadth and the length and the depth. What does he mean by those specifically? Well, there are several ways that we could understand those words, breadth, length, height, and depth. Um, Several commentaries have several different ways of viewing that. I think it's best when we look at the context is just very simply to understand that all of these things are describing the fullness of love, right? We talk about the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And so in other words, it's all encompassing. But I would point out that even just in Ephesians, we see examples of all of these things. Here in chapter 3, we see the breadth of God's love encompassing all people. Because what? Both the Jews and the Gentiles, as Paul has been saying, are now loved by God and brought into the family of God. And so from the beginning of time, this has been God's plan. And so we see some of the breadth of God's love in that. The length of God's love. In chapter 1, God's love is demonstrated through the length of the fabric of time. In other words, we were chosen in Him before the foundations of the world and will dwell with Him forever in eternity future. The length of love. The height of love can be seen also in chapter 1. It speaks of how blessed we are with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 20, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. The height of love is in some ways incomprehensible. As with the rest of these, the depth of love, the depths of God's love, if we consider the first two verses of chapter 2, Right? You were dead in your sins and trespasses. It was the depths of sin and hopelessness in which God came to save you. Christ came and he defeated sin and death and the grave. And so we see the depth of love. Paul continuing his prayer that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. It's impossible to know all of Christ's love with mere head knowledge, right? We certainly have to renew our minds, the scripture tells us, with the word of God. But this is why we need inner strength. Because this love, this love of God, is a love that surpasses human knowledge. It's truly something that's unfathomable for the Christian while we're here on earth. We're never going to fully grasp the fullness of God's love for us. It's one of those distant stars of truth that we just sort of see a sparkle of while we're here on earth. But we can certainly know something of it, and we can certainly live out of this love, and we should. It's a deep, meaningful, demonstrative love. God's love towards us and then our love towards others as well. It has to be an intentional action. And so it's obvious that even the world should know that we are followers of Christ because of this world. I say it's obvious because Jesus himself in John 13, 35 says, by this, what is this? Love. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, this passage gets often taken out of context and it gets used to say you should love all of the godless and the worldly around you. And we certainly should love them, but that is not what this verse is speaking of. Jesus himself is saying that the world, the unbelievers, will know that you are disciples of mine if you have love for one another. And so we certainly should give preference to our brothers and sisters in Christ over those in the world. It's not speaking of loving strangers or loving our neighbor, although we should, or our community. The power of this world 
is that the world around us will know that we treat one another very differently. It's the kind of love that proves to the world we're disciples of Christ. And so it has to be a demonstrative love, otherwise how could the world know that? It has to be something that they can see. It's a preferential love. Yes, we love the body of Christ in ways we don't love the world. Just like you love your family preferentially over your neighbors. And so Paul prays that we would come to understand the fullness of God's love together with the saints. To be, as Paul says, filled up with the fullness of God is really to become emptied of self. In other words, God has it all. He gets it all. He has the keys to every room in the house of your heart, as it were. There are no locked doors that we're holding on to. In other words, our life is dominated by the desire to be obedient to Christ. And that is born out of love, not legalism. We want to obey because we love God, because he saved us. He's first loved us. And that's the love that we also show to those around us. We, As Paul concludes his prayer, he ends with a praise and a benediction, one that I often use. And he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and amen. So as we pray, sometimes we might kneel like Paul. And as we open every room in the house of our hearts to Christ, asking him to clean out the filth of the world, and as we love one another, as we strive to obey Christ and his word, we are being filled up, as Paul prays, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the end, God is the one who receives all of the glory in the church and in Christ and in every generation and in every Christian person. Let's pray.